Today, we continue in our journey, 50 Days of Transformation. We've been looking specifically about seven areas of life, seeking God's transforming power in those areas and trying to look at those areas through preaching, through small groups, through some daily devotional times in the Transform Daily Guidebook. We've been looking at your spiritual health and your physical health and mental health and emotional health. Today, we want to talk about relational health. How to have relationships transformed. Anybody here have a relationship that you can think of that you're thinking, I wish it was a little better. Maybe it's a work relationship. Maybe it's a marriage relationship. Maybe it's a relationship with your brother or your sister, your mom, your dad, a cousin, a friend, a neighbor. You're thinking, I wish that relationship was a little bit better. The Bible speaks to those relationships. Actually, it all begins back in the very beginning in Genesis. I want to go all the way back to Genesis. I want to look at the very first book of the Bible today with Adam and Eve. All of our problems and relationships started with Adam and Eve. You can thank them. You can say it's all your fault. That's where it all began. God created this entire universe. He created the entire universe, the entire world. And then on that world, He created that. And He created that to sustain life. And He created the entire universe to sustain life. And so then He created mankind and put mankind on this world. And He did that, I personally believe, is because God desired relationship. God desired a family. And so He created this earth and He popularly made people to live on this earth. And it was all part of His plan. So in the very beginning, back in the Genesis... In the garden, he created Adam and he puts him in the Garden of Eden and it was a perfect paradise. Adam had everything he could possibly expect or desire. I would love to go back to that day. I'd love to go back and see the garden. I think we'll see that when this earth gets restored and we get a chance to go to heaven. But I would love to see trees that have no problems and flowers that are in bloom and absolutely beautiful and rivers that run absolutely pure with no pollution. I mean, no weeds in the garden. It would be awesome to go back to that day and live when Adam was living. He had this perfect paradise. However, Adam was lonely. And I think he saw that in the animals. He saw even animals had relationship. And he's like, wait a minute, I'm out here by myself. Yes, the trees are beautiful and flowers are gorgeous and the rivers are wonderful. But I think he started realizing I'm by myself. And God knew that. And God knew that Adam was lonely. He needed a partner. So what happens? He makes woman out of Adam. He makes a man. There are so many symbolisms in that just that little passage. God creates Adam, a helpmate from him, from a rib out of his own body. Now you stop and think about it, God could have made a lady out of his foot. But I think there would have been symbolism there that man is to rule over a a woman. And God didn't use a rib. God could have made woman out of a part of his head. But I think there would have been symbolism there like she's going to rule over man. No, he didn't do that. He took a rib that was near his heart and made a lady and called her woman, and I think it came from his rib near his heart saying, they're partners, and there's a deep love in there. Now, there's a whole lot to be taught just within that, not quite exactly where I want to go today, but things were going rather well for some time. Actually, I think it's the first perfect relationship. It was a perfect relationship. There was no sadness, there was no sickness, there was no sorrow, there was no crying, there was no deceit, there was no lying, there was no one-upping each other. The relationship was perfect. They were a couple that had a perfect relationship, the only one until what? Until sin entered the world. 
And when sin entered the world, things started to fall apart. You probably know the story, but let me refresh you with a few of the details. Satan comes to Eve and lies to her, and he says, didn't God say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? And that's not what God said. God said there is one tree. But of course, God hadn't said that. There's only one tree not to do. That's the minimum temptation. Everything else is within limits, but just stay away from that one tree. Just one tree off limits. Why is that? I think it points to the choice that God gives us choices. And God wants us to choose a relationship with Him. And so there's choices. Then He says, God's lying to you. You're not going to die if you eat of the fruit of that tree. In fact, You'll be as wise as God was. You'll be God. There's a lie in there. And every temptation comes down to that basic issue. I want to be God. Really, Satan never tempts us with wanting to be like him. Satan's never come and said, hey, listen, you can be just like me and you will be evil. All of us run from that. Satan Satan comes and says, ah, that God that you worship, he's old-fashioned. Oh, oh, God that you worship, He really doesn't want you to be happy. Oh, that God that you worship, He's a killjoy. And so you go out and have fun and live life, have a party, do things the way you want to. And what happens is, is we start to become God. Become God of our own lives. That's the temptation that Satan's really dangling out there before us all the time. God really didn't say, you're in charge of your own life. And Eve fell for that. Let's look at the text together. Genesis chapter 3, pick up verse 6. So Eve ate some of the fruit. Then she also gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her, and he ate it. Immediately their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. This is where shame enters the world. It didn't exist until this point. Shame enters the world. There had never been any shame, never any kind of guilt, never any kind of fear prior to this. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover up themselves. Then... They heard the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from God among the trees. But God called out to Adam, Where are you? Adam replied, I heard you coming and I was afraid. He hid. Why was he hiding? Fear. Afraid of God. Because I was naked, so I hid. Then God asked, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I command you not eat from? Adam said, You gave me this woman. You see the humor in that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not my fault. And she gave me the fruit, so I ate it. Then God said to Eve, why did you do this? Eve replied, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So God said to Eve, because you disobeyed me. In other words, because you didn't do what I told you to do, there's going to be a curse now. Everything's broken. One of the things that's going to be broken is childbirth. Look, it says, he said, you'll have greater trouble in pregnancy and great pain in childbirth. Any mothers in here can say amen to that. You understand, or thanks a lot, Eve, right? It wouldn't have been this way, but we all, it was her fault. And though you'll desire your husband, and in other words, you're still going to love your husband, he's going to lord it over you. What does that mean, he's going to lord it over you? In other words, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be domination issues. There's going to be distractions. There's going to be power struggles in your relationships from now on. Eve, you're going to love your husband, but your husband's going to be the one who's in control. And he's going to try to be your boss and tell you how to live life. Then God said to Adam, because you also disobeyed me and sinned with your wife, the ground you work is now cursed. And though you, you'll get to eat what you planted, your fields will have weeds and thorns and thistles. Thank you, Adam, for all the weeds in this world. Anybody in here like to do gardening? 
and realize how difficult the weeds can be. We tried that a few years ago, having a garden up on the back of the property, and we lost the battle with the weeds. Thank you, Adam. We would have had nice food if it wasn't for him. And for the rest of your life, you'll have to sweat and work hard to get your food until you yourself are returned to the dirt that I use to create you. It's a fascinating story. It's a true account. It's part of our history filled with enormous amounts of spiritual truth. I just want to point out some relational truths in this passage today. In this, in this story, we see three fundamental basic fears that pop up in every single relationship. And I want you to know today, you listen in close, take some good notes and you apply what you learn today and this week in your quiet times and as your small group studies, you put it to work, your marriage can be transformed. Your, your relationships with people at work can be transformed. Your relationships with your brother or your sister or your mom or dad, whoever the struggles are, the ones that you desire and say, you know, I want that to be better. You put to practice some of the things we're going to learn today and transformation can take place. Let's jump in. How fears ruin our relationships. The first fear we learn is this. The fear of exposure makes me distant. The fear of exposure makes me distant. The fear of exposure makes me distant. Why can't I get close to people? You ever had that feeling? You ever wonder, why is it I can only get so close and then it seems like things turn the other way? Why is it it feels like I get so close and then there's like a wall between, between us? Why is it I want my marriage to go deeper? I want more intimacy there. I would like to have that, but it just doesn't go that way. Here's the truth, and, and there's a lot in it that, that you don't like. Here's the truth is sometimes you don't like yourself. And you, you don't like who you are. And because you don't like who you are, then you certainly don't want other people to really know the depths of your heart so your relationships only go so far, but actually they stay distant. The things that you don't accept about you, you have a fear will not be accepted by others, so you keep your distance. You stay away. Because when people get close to you, then they can see all your challenges and all your flaws and all your warts and all your scars and all your problems. The closer people get to you, they see your blemishes. The more they see your mistakes and your faults and your, and your failures and your weaknesses, then we have a fear that people won't love us and accept us for who we are. And so we stay distant. Look at verse 9 and 10 in Genesis 3. God called to Adam, why are you hiding? And Adam said, I was afraid because... I was naked and so I hid. He was afraid that God would know what he did. So he created distance between him and God. Let me say a couple of things. Whenever God asks you a question, because God asked Adam two questions, first he says, where are you and why are you hiding? Whenever God asks you a question, he already knows the answer. So he's not asking the question for you uh, for him, he's asking the question for you. He's asking the question for you to do some introspective work between him and say, okay, God, I hear your question. You already know the answer. Now i got to better figure that one out. And that's what he was doing with Adam. He was saying, where are you? Any transformation in any area of life, including relationships, only happens when you, when you own up to the fact that they aren't what they ought to be. When you own up to the fact and, and say, you know what, my marriage is okay, but I want it better. 
or my relationship with my friend is good, but I want it better, or my relationship with so-and-so at work, it's not very good, I want it to better. Until we can own up and say, you know what, it is where it is, but I want it better, we're going to be stuck and there's going to be distance. So it starts with owning up and being honest with God and with yourself that my relationships are not all that they could be. They could be a whole lot better than they are right now. I want you to notice a simple phrase. He said, I was afraid and I hid. I was afraid and I hid because they go together. When you're fearful, you hide. Fear always causes us to hide. I wonder what you're hiding from today. What are you hiding from today? What are you pretending to not know? What are you sweeping under the rug? What, what is in your marriage that you're pretending isn't in a problem? What are you pretending isn't a problem in your life? What are you pretending isn't a problem in your relationships because you're afraid of facing the truth? God doesn't want you to fake it. He doesn't want you to pretend. He wants you to face it when it comes to fear. What are you pretending right now? You're saying, I'm afraid, and so I hide. Look at the phrase. He said, I was naked. What does it mean to be naked? And most of us are like, well, take your clothes off. You're naked. There's a lot more to that text. It's not just about being physically naked. It's about emotional nakedness. It's about being exposed. It's about being uncovered. It means to be vulnerable, to be authentic. It means that you're out in the open. It means you're unprotected. You're never more vulnerable than when you're naked. It's all out there. There's nothing to hide. When we're afraid of nakedness, when we're afraid of vulnerability, afraid of being open, afraid of being honest, afraid of letting people see who we really are, my fear of exposure makes me distant, so I run and I hide versus being vulnerable and open with people. One of our deepest needs, I believe, is to be loved. But one of your deepest fears is the fear of being seen for who you really are. Who are you really when no one is watching, when no one else is around? What are the dark spots in the depth of your heart that you're hiding and you're like, I can't let anybody else know this about me. So you can live with a husband or a wife for 30, 40, 50 years and really know, know who they really are. You can have a long-time friend relationship that's gone on for 20 or 25 years and really know, never know the depth of who they are unless you're vulnerable. Unless you're, you're emotionally naked. I want you to notice the damage that fear does to a relationship. Three stages. Phase one is shame. Verse 7, once they dis disobeyed God, the first thing that ended the relationship was shame. When they disobeyed God, shame enters. Look what it says. They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Fear is often based in shame. When you carry shame, you're easily embarrassed. When you carry shame, you fear uh, embarrassment almost of anything there is. And you will do almost anything in your life to avoid embarrassment. That is the symptom you're carrying of unresolved shame in your life. Shame makes us more self-conscious. Shame makes me more nervous. Shame makes me more fearful of being humiliated. I'm going to avoid at all costs. Shame means that I'm easily mortified because if you have any of those in your life, it means, means there's some shame you haven't given to God and you haven't let Him take it over. Satan uses shame. Faith too is a cover-up. That's what happens when we have shame Then we try to conceal it. Look at the second part of verse 7, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves up. Have you ever seen a fig leaf? They're not very big. For some of you, it would take a bunch of fig leaves. I included. Today, though, we have all kinds of sophisticated ways 
That one's getting me. (laughs) It's a bad image to think about yourself covered in fig leaves. We have all kinds of sophisticated ways of covering up who we really are. It's not fig leaves anymore. Some people use humor. Some of you, you were the class clown growing up. You're like, I'm not going to really deal with my emotional scars, what's going on at home. And so you're the one who stirred up the classroom and you continue that today in your adulthood. Anytime things get serious, you're in a small group and someone's having a discussion, you're like, okay, we've got to break the ice, something funny has to happen right now. Because you're not going to really get to what the core of going on. Maybe you cover your insecurities uh, by, by presenting an image that you've got it all together. You drive the right kind of car. You, you make sure you go to the right kind of stores. You wear the right kind of clothing. You're like, if I dress just right and look just right, then nobody will really know what's going on inside of me. And then today, here's the big one we deal with. Your online image. Oh, we can paint a picture that life's great. I want on this vacation, and my kid's an all-star of this. They did that. And everything is great, and all you do is put out there online all this great stuff that's happened in my life, and you paint this online image that I've got it all together, and you're really just faking it and hiding the fears that you have inside your life. Stop pretending. Stop pretending like it's all together. Can we just all say, I am broken? We are, every single one of us have scars. Every single one of us have dark spots. Every single one of us have tripped. Every single one of us have fallen. Every single one of us has skinned our knee, banged our head. Every single one of us have broken a bone in some way in life. Shame, we cover up. And then phase three is distance from God. Verse eight, they hid from God among the trees. John Powell wrote a book several years ago called Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Really Am? It's a good question. Why am I afraid? The answer to that question was the reason I'm afraid to tell you who I really am is because you may not like who I really am. And if I share with you who I really am, who I'm pretending to be, uh, if I share that, and then maybe you won't accept me for who I really am. And sometimes you then you feel like you're up a creek without a paddle, so to speak. There's no way I'm going to really let you see the real me because you might reject me. They hid from God among the trees. This causes not only to be disconnected from other people, but it causes us to have a relationship with God that is fractured and then have a relationship with others that are fractured. Let, let me tell you, if you get nothing else out of this message, get this. God does not expect you to be perfect. He doesn't expect you to be perfect. He expects you to be honest, but not perfect. And truth be told, none of us will be there. So the first fear is the fear of being exposed, causing me to be distant. The second fear we see in Adam and Eve is the fear of disapproval. My fear of disapproval makes me defensive. Now, we, we move simply from hiding and running and covering up now to being defensive, and we start attacking other people back. We're not just hiding. We're, 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 we're not just hiding. We're, now we're hurling. Now we're launching back an attack. We're not just excusing ourselves. Now we're accusing others. In this stage, when I have this fear of disapproval, I start pointing fingers at everybody else and say, well, it's their fault. And you hear people say, but you did th- that. Yeah, but you did this. And you're hurling insults back and forth. They move from hiding to hurling. The more critical a person is, the more you fear, you know they fear disapproval. 
stop for a moment right where we are and ask between you and God, do you have a critical spirit? Do you find yourself constantly evaluating and talking down about how other people are doing this or doing that? This is not right. That's not right. Everyone's doing it wrong. If you're battling a critical spirit, I would say that your fear of being disapproved of by others is high. The more critical, the more perfectionistic, the more attacking somebody else, they're always putting someone down. The more you know that person is inside of you, the more you fear disapproval. And sometimes it's just to practice. God, I'm getting critical about someone just to practice to close mouth. Just to practice a quiet spirit. Because that's the way it shows up. Look at verse 12. God asked, did you eat what I told you not to eat? Adam answered and said, you gave me this woman and she gave me the fruit, so I ate it. You see Adam matting up? Blaming his wife. Wasn't me, God. It was her. He's not even blaming his wife. He's gone as far as blaming God. He says, you gave me this woman, God. God, it's your fault. If you hadn't given me this woman, you and me, God, we'd be good and things would be great. I'd be still sitting around here drinking perfect iced tea and enjoying the streams and sitting here by the garden and there'd be no problems. But God, you gave me to her and she seduced me and she messed it all up. So Adam's blaming not only Eve, he's blaming God for his choice. Now ladies, I'm sorry you don't get off the hook because Eve wasn't any more willing to accept her responsibility. Look at verse 13. Eve said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. She said, well, it wasn't me. It was that thing over there, that little snake serpent thing. So Adam blames his wife and Eve blames the snake. My fear of disapproval makes me defensive. This happens in your marriage and in your relationships all the time. If anybody says anything to you or your wife says something to you or your husband says something to you that you feel has a hint of disapproval, you immediately get defensive and you want to guard and fight and protect. You immediately get defensive. And you either explain it or attack back or you accuse or you excuse or you get catty or chatty or whatever and you go at somebody. You find that in your relationships, you're battling a fear of not being approved. You're Battling that fear of, of disapproval. My fear of exposure makes me distant, and my fear of disapproval makes me defensive. And thirdly, my fear of losing control makes me demanding. This is for the control freaks in the room. When things are spinning out of control, things at work are stressful, it's out of your control. Things at home are out of control. What do you do? You try to get things under control and you try to take control. And the result of Adam and Eve's sin is they lost control. They lost control of everything. Their future and their destiny and their paradise. And now they're feeling totally out of control because of where they were. Now they're going to try and control the situation. And they're trying to control the situation with God. You say it this way. The more out of control you feel, the more controlling you'll become. And so when life is crashing in, when your, work, when your boss is putting pressure on you, you're like, okay, I can't do anything about that. When sickness hits, you're like, that's out of my hands, it's out of my control. When things are really getting difficult, you, the tendency for us is, well, I've got to grab what I can, and so I start bossing every people around, 
I start making demands. I start protecting myself. I start defending and demanding and demeaning. I start dominating. And the more insecure you are, the greater you have the need to get your way. If you're a very secure person, you don't have the need to get your way all the time. It doesn't really bother you. You can have your way sometime. You let other people have their way. If you're an insecure person, you want to control everything and everything has to go the way you want it to go. You fight for your way and you push for your way and you try to control your way. The more out of control you feel, the more controlling you come. Look at verse 16 where God says to Eve, you'll have yearnings for your husband. In other words, they're going to love your husband. You both messed up. But he will lord it over you. The Berkeley version says he will dominate you. In other words, there's going to be tension here over controlling issues. This is where the war of the sexes came in, right here in the text. All the misunderstanding between men and women, husband and wives, boyfriends and girlfriends, all the confusion and conflict, all the jockeying for power and position, all the tit for tat and all of the this for that, all the bargaining, who's going to be in control and who's going to run this and who's top dog, all of it goes back to this situation where sin entered in. And God said, because of sin, here's the results. It's not a whole lot of fun to be in that kind of relationship, is it? It's not a whole lot of fun to be in that tug of war, that constant battling and and hitting heads against each other where you're not cooperating with each other. Wouldn't you rather be in a situation, a relationship where we cooperate and we come alongside one another? Rather that be in your work or whether it be in in your love relationships, whatever it may be, in a friend relationship where it's not like, I gotta be on top, no, you gotta be on top, no, I gotta be in charge, no, you're in charge, instead of having that kind of relationship where, hey, we're on the same team together. What is the antidote that transforms relationships? That relieves these fear? The fear of exposure, the fear of disapproval, the fear of losing control that causes me to be distant and defensive and demanding relationship? There is only one antidote, and that antidote is love. Learning to live in God's love. That's the antidote. That's the answer. 1 John 4.18, the first half of the verse says, wherever God's love is, there is no fear. No fear. So if you want to get rid of fear in relationships, you've got to get God's love into it. You want to get rid of fear in your career? Get God's love into it. You want to get rid of fear in your marriage? Get God's love into it. You want to get rid of fear in your education or in your sports or whatever? Get God's love into it. Wherever there is fear, then God's love is missing. Because God's perfect love drives out fear. Drives it out. See, the opposite of fear is not faith. Many people think that. Well, the opposite of fear is faith. No, the opposite of fear is love. See, when you invite God's love into the front door of your heart, last week we talked about your heart and how that's the center of your emotions. When you ask God's love into your heart through the front door, then you know what takes off out the back door? Fear. But when fear comes in the front door of your heart, you know what goes out the back door? Love. And so we've got to fill our minds with the love of God because fear and love cannot live in the same house. It's not possible. They don't live in the same house. When you let fear in the front door of your house, then love goes out the back door. And whenever you're afraid, you're not being loving, but perfect love casts out all fear. Why is it? You've heard the situations. Maybe you've been in it. You've even seen it before. Why is it a house can be on fire? People are standing outside going, oh my goodness, we're in a fire truck. Why is it there's someone that runs inside? A lot of times the story goes, it's usually a mother. Why do they run inside? Because their child's inside. Their baby's inside. And they say, forget fear. I love that child so much. And they run right inside the house. Because love casts out fear. 
1 John 4.18 says, It is the thought of punishment that makes a person fearful. It is the thought of punishment? It's the thinking, the negative consequences. How many times have you been afraid to tell the truth because of the consequences? How many times have you been afraid to tell the whole truth because you fear the consequences? How many times have you gone maybe to a party or to a social, or maybe on a date, you go somewhere, you're entering some relationships, and because of fear of the consequences, the punishment you receive, you go, well, I'm not, I'm not going to go. I'm, I'm going to stay away. How many times have you had a friend that you knew something was wrong in their life? Or maybe in your marriage, you know something's wrong in it, and you're like, I need to speak the truth. And you go and you sit down and say, honey, I need to speak the truth. Or you say to your friend, I need to speak the truth. And you don't give them the whole truth, you only give them 90%. Or you only give them 75% or 80%. You give them a lot of the truth, but not all of it. It's because of the fear of what's going to happen to this relationship. True love casts out all fear. It's the thought of punishment or negative consequences that makes a person fearful. So how do you learn to live in God's love? You do three things. I think if you do these three things... Your relationships experience transformation. You make three choices. Every day I surrender, every day I remember, and every day I offer. If I do these three things, and you do them continually, you'll see transformation happen in your relationships. You have been married maybe for 40 years, or 30 years, or 20 years. Maybe you've had a relationship that lasts a long time. You're like, I want to see transformation. Then put these principles into action. Number one, every day, surrender my heart to God. Have you caught the theme this whole journey that we're on, this transformed journey, it's an everyday walking with God. Every single day. Every day I surrender my heart to God. Last week we talked about our emotions. It said the heart is the center of your emotions. And I said, before your feet hit the floor, to have a prayer or something like, God, before I even start this day, I surrender my heart to you, my emotions to you. God, I want you to be the Lord of my feelings, the Lord of my emotions. I want you to control my mind and emotions, my heart. I surrender it all to you. What about, Lord, I also surrender to you my relationships. I give that over to you. Why? Because God is love. The closer you get to God, the more your heart will be filled with love. The further you get from God, the more fear will take over your life. Did you hear that? The closer you get to God, the more you spend time with God, you will be filled with love, which drives out fear. But the more you, or the less you spend time with God, the more fear takes over, which drives out love. See, if you get away from God, fear and anxiety and worry and insecurity, those things start to soar in your life. So if I get close to God, it casts out worry and casts out insecurity and casts out anxiety, the fears and all those things. Now Job is a man of trials. Go through and read the book of Job's book of Job. But in chapter 11, there's a verse that I think you might want to memorize. It's not the memory verse for this week. It's a long verse, but it's a great verse. It says this, Job 11, Surrender your heart to God. Turn to Him in prayer and give up your sins, even those you do in secret. The very first thing you do in the morning, you sit on the side of your bed, you surrender your heart to God, turn in prayer, and you give up your sins. You, even God, I give you all my sins, even the ones I do in secret, even the ones I'm not aware about. Hand them over to you. And then notice the benefits. You, will, you won't be ashamed. Whenever shame is going to be banished from your life, you won't be ashamed. You will be confident and fearless. 
Your troubles will go away like water beneath a bridge, and your darkest night will be brighter than noon. Then you'll rest safe and secure, filled with hope and emptied of worry. Does anybody desire that today? I mean, that could have been the whole sermon today. Let's just look at a couple of these verses right here. Let's just read them and say, okay, let's put those to action. I mean, I could have done the whole thing. There are three commands and there are eight promises in that verse. God says, you do this and I'll do this. Every promise has a premise. Surrender your heart to God. Surrender your heart to God. God, I give you my emotions. God, I give you my heart. I do it every day. I turn to Him in prayer. I talk to Him in prayer. And God, I give you my sins. That's confession. God, I'm broken. God, I mess up. God, I trip. God, I stumble. You do that every day. God, God, I've done that wrong. God, my attitude was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. God, give me a clean heart. Confess your sins so that He'll purify you and make you righteous. You do that daily. And then notice the eight benefits. No shame. You'll be confident. You'll be fearless. Your troubles will be clear like water under the bridge. The dark night you're going through is going to be brighter than noon. You'll be able to sleep well. Some of you struggle with sleep because you're filled with sin. Unconfessed sin. A lot of times we can get back to a regular sleeping pattern just by dealing with struggles and sins in our life, confessing them. You're going to be able to rest and safe and secure. You'll sleep well. You'll be filled with hope and you're going to be emptied of worry. Wow. Man alive. Look at that verse. You ought to take that verse and write it on a 3 by 5 card this week. Put it on your mirror. Put it in your car. Make copies of it. You just say, God, I just need to do this in my life. It'll transform your relationship. First thing you do is live in God every day. Surrender my heart to God. And then you look at the benefits. Two, not only do I surrender, then every day I remember. Every day to remember the way God loves me. I think we need to practice pausing and remembering God's love for us. I think sometimes we just run so fast and we go so quick in this rat race world that we don't stop to think about the love of God. So I have to remind myself every day about what God thinks about me. Not what the world thinks. Not what you think about yourself, but what God thinks of me. What, what does God think about me? That removes fear. Let me just give you four of the things that I think God thinks about you. One is, He thinks you're completely accepted. You are fully accepted. That's important because the deepest wounds in your life are those caused by rejection. So we spend so much of our lives trying to earn the acceptance and avoid rejection from our parents and our peers and those who respect and envy. Even total strangers, we want their respect. We want to be accepted. We don't want to be rejected. There's a myth that says, if I could just be perfect enough, then everybody would like me. If I could just be good enough, if I would just quit messing up, can I tell you the truth? Jesus was perfect, and there's a lot of people who didn't like him. There's a whole lot of people who didn't like him, didn't receive him. It's a lesson I've had to learn as a preacher. I've always you know, used to think, well, you're a preacher, and people are going to love you because you preach God's word and you love Jesus. The truth be told, not everyone loves the preacher. <clears throat> and God has said, I accept you and I love you. Some of you need to hear that today. God accepts you right where you are today. Here's the good news. You don't need everybody's approval to be happy. You really don't. The bad news is you're not going to get it anyway. 
point here is you need to realize the issue of acceptance has already been settled by God. Titus 3.7 says, Jesus made us acceptable to God. Jesus did it. Jesus, what He did on the cross made you acceptable to God. If God likes me and I like me and you don't like me, then that's your problem. That's the attitude we need to carry. If I know I am accepted by God and I accept myself, then, then why worry about what other people are thinking? Every day I remember I'm accepted. Secondly, I'm unconditionally loved. Unconditionally. That that's what God thinks about you. He loves you unconditionally. There's a lot of things I can say about God's love, but two of the characteristics of God's love are that He's consistent and it's unconditional. God is not fickle. He's not unpredictable. God doesn't say, I'm going to love you today, but tomorrow, we'll wait and see. God doesn't say, I'm going to love you today, but we'll see how you behave tomorrow, and then I'll make my decision. Some kids grow up never knowing if their dad is going to hug them or their dad's going to slug them. Some of you have grown up with that. You didn't know if mom and dad were going to love you or punish you. You didn't know if mom and dad were going to hug you or abuse you. And that has affected your relationship with God to this day. If you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear that God loves you unconditionally. He loves you unconditionally. He's not keeping score. And moms and dads, may I just say to you, if your love is inconsistent and one day you hug your kids and the next day you beat your kids, you're going to teach them to have a very insecure relationship with God. And you teach them insecurity. He doesn't say, I love you because. He doesn't say, I love you if. He says, I love you, period. Period. I love you, period. I love you. He doesn't say, I love you uh, when you do this. I love you when you do this. I love you when you do that. He says, I love you in spite of the fact. And God can't stop loving you. He'll never stop loving you. God will never love you more than this very second. And God will never love you less than this very second. No matter what you do this afternoon or tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, how you stumble and how you may fall, God will still love you in the middle of it. And I think if you have a child, you understand that. You can understand it to some degree to say, you know what, my children are going to mess up, they're going to screw up, they're going to stumble, they're going to fall, but I'm still going to love them. Even if your child did something so horrendous, that put them in prison or took somebody else's life, you would still love your child. Oh, you wouldn't be happy with their choices. You wouldn't celebrate their choices, but you would still be right there with them. God will never turn His back on you. God's love is not based on what you do, but it's based on who He is. And He is love. Isaiah 54.10 says, My love for you will never end, says the Lord. It will never end. I am completely accepted and I'm unconditional love. The third thing to remember is this is that I'm totally forgiven. Totally forgiven. So why am I carrying shame? Why am I holding on to shame? I am totally forgiven for whatever you have done. Do you realize that before God even made you, He already knew the worst things you'd ever do, and He still chose to love you? He knew Him. He knows the mistakes we'll make this week, and He still chose to give us Jesus on the cross. 
He knows the things you're going to do and the things that you won't do, and He knows how you're going to try to get even. He knows the mistakes you're going to do. He knows how you're going to trip and how you're going to fall, how you're going to hurt somebody, and He still has chosen to say, I love you and I forgive you. Romans 8.1 says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only one that brings condemnation is the liar, the evil one, Satan. He's the one that brings condemnation. That's not of God. Number four, what does God think of you? I'm considered extremely valuable. I'm considered extremely valuable. Let me ask you a very personal question. How much do you think you're worth? How much do you think you're worth? I'm not talking about your net worth. I'm not talking about your self-worth. I'm not talking about adding up your house and adding up all your valuables. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how much do you think you are worth as a person? Now, it's really hard to put a dollar sign to that, isn't it? Virtually impossible to put a dollar sign to that. You're not really sure. Let me ask you another question. What is it that makes something valuable? There, I think there's two things that create value. One is who owns it. So whoever owns it, that creates some value. And the second is what somebody's willing to pay for it. Isn't that basically it? When you're looking at things of value, who owns it, what's, what's somebody willing to pay for it? That's what determines value. In other words... Value depends on who owns something. I mean, would you agree if you were at an auction and they held up two different toothbrushes and one said, this is the toothbrush of Brian Bolton. We're going to auction that off. And the other one, this is the toothbrush of John Lennon. We're going to auction that off. They're both nasty, disgusting toothbrushes. Which one's going to go for the higher dollar? Brian, yeah. <laughs> We'd all hope. We know John Lennon's would sell and mine would be thrown in a box or in a trash somewhere. It's all about who owned it and how much someone's willing to pay for it. Who do you belong to? Who owns you? God does. You're a child of the King. God is your Father. You're a daughter of God. Just like an oil sheik would pay the price for that ransom girl, she's a daughter of the King. Here's what the Bible says about you. You've been bought with a price and paid for by Christ's death. You're valuable. You're extremely valuable. Value depends on what somebody's willing to pay for. How much is your house worth? Depending on the market, they've kind of been up and down. I hear maybe it's a little bit on and up. But you may be sitting here thinking, I'm going to sell my house, and it's worth $250,000. Someone comes in and says, no, I'll give you two hundred. You're like, what? My house is worth more. i got to tell you the truth. No, it's not. It's only worth what someone's willing to pay for. It's only worth what someone's willing to write the check for. I hate to tell you that, but, G- but here's the truth. Jesus Christ paid for your life with His. That's how valuable you are. We are owned by God and Jesus Christ paid for your life with His. So how do I remember every day the way God loves me? I get up in the morning and I say, God, I just want to remind myself how much you love me. And in that prayer you say, God, I want to believe it today. Help me to believe that I am accepted. Help me to know that I am unconditionally loved. Help me to believe I'm totally forgiven. And God, help me. Help me be considered and realize how valuable I am in the eyes of God. Because Satan tells us all the opposites. Satan tells us you're not accepted. Satan tells you you're worthless. Satan tells you you're not any good. Satan tells you you're not loved. Satan says you're not forgiven. And those are all lies. Remind yourself of those things. Here's the third thing. I surrender, I remember, and then every day I offer. 
I offer that same love to other people. The same love that God gives to me, the Bible says I'm to offer to other people that I come in contact with. Every day, I offer that same love to other people. You don't hold that back. John 13, 34, Jesus said, I'm going to give you a new commandment to love each other. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. He didn't say, well, you love them if they, do, if they love you. He didn't say, you love them if they're kind to you. He didn't say, now you love them if, and you fill in the blank. He said, you love them as I loved you. If you're a follower of Christ, our call is to love everybody, even the ones that are difficult. Whether you like them or not, we love them the same way Christ loved us. That, 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 that is, you are to accept them completely You are to accept them unconditionally. You are to forgive them totally. You are to consider them extremely valuable. Jesus said you are to love everybody else in the same way that I have loved you. And that transforms relationships. Romans 15.7 said, Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. It doesn't say change one another. It doesn't say fix one another. I think for Brian and I, I've been married over 20 years now, I think one of the things that started waking our marriage up is when we realized I can't change her and she can't change me. And for me to accept her with how God has put her together and for her to accept me with how God has put me together and allow the Holy Spirit to do the work inside of us. And you know, when you transfer that to all relationships, people at work that do things different, well, I, don't, I don't know why they do things different. It's funny to me, it's weird to me, but I'm going to love them where they are. People in church... Serve alongside in a ministry together, working on a project together. Oh man, why do they do it this way or that way? I don't know why they do that. I'm going to accept them the way they are. They don't do it like I do it. But that's okay. Accept them for who they are and whose they are. What does it mean? Accept one another. It means this. It means I must accept everybody else the way Jesus accepts me. Jesus accepts you and me with all of our scars and all of our faults and all of our bumps and all of our bruises and all of our shortcomings. He still accepts us. I must love everybody the way Jesus loves everybody. I must forgive everybody the way Jesus forgives me. I must value everybody else the way Jesus values me. And when you practice that, relationships are changed. Not because because you're changing them, but because you're allowing Christ to change who you are. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love never stops being patient. Love never stops believing. Love never stops hoping. Love never gives up. That's what real love is. This is how God loves you. God never stops being patient with you. We should never stop being patient with somebody else. God never stops believing in you. We should never stop believing in people who we're in a relationship with. God never stops hoping for the best in your life. We should hope for the best in other people's lives. God never gives up on you, and we should never give up on others. That's what God expects you to do with everybody else. Will you close your eyes with me? I want you to think of a person that maybe the relationship is fractured or struggling. I want you to think of a person that you desire to have a better relationship with. Maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your wife. Maybe the person you're thinking of might be a co-worker. Maybe it's a sister. Maybe it's a brother, an aunt, uncle, a neighbor, a friend. Father, in our mind, we have a person right now. And God, we trust that that person you've brought to our mind in this moment. 
And God, we've been talking this morning about relationships. And Father, I want to pray specifically for the person we're thinking of. God, help us to be patient with this person. God, help us to never stop believing in them. God, help us to hold on to hope for the best in their life. God, help us to never give up on them. God, help us to love them with the love of Christ. Father, You can transform our relationships when we follow Your example. That, Lord, You loved unconditionally. Lord, that You accept us right where we are. That, Lord, You forgive us. That, Lord, You see us as valuable. When we carry that mindset towards our relationships, Father, our relationships can be transformed and changed. Father, for the person, and maybe, maybe one per- more than one person we're thinking of right now, Lord, Help us to put to practice what we've learned today. Help us not to walk out of here and say, well, that was a good message and go home and forget about it. Lord, would you stir inside of our hearts with the power of your Spirit for us to do something about, about what, you're, what you're bringing to our mind right now. And Father, as we come to this time of communion, we stop and remember the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Father, that reminds us of your great love that is unconditional. Reminds us of Your forgiveness that forgives all. Reminds us, Lord, that You don't give up on us. Reminds us, Lord, that You love us so much that You gave us Jesus, which makes us valuable. And so, Lord, as we receive our communion today, as we partake together, help us to to receive the love of Christ in this time. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.